this is Jennifer. And this is Paige. And this is Big Book Energy. This week, we are back for books we love. Yay! Fun. Um, and this is Paige's turn to pick a book that she loves. So this week, we are going to be talking about... Anna Karenina, which is actually my favorite book. Like, period? It's like, your period. Favorite book. Like, and stop. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. We were talking about that in the very beginning about picking favorite books. It's like, I can pick a favorite and then like 13 favorites. This is my, the favorite a book. A favorite. Yeah. Wow. And then like, after okay. this, it's just like a big group of books I love. But like, this is my favorite. I cannot, I cannot do that. I can't, I can't pick a single favorite book. I mean, like, that's fair. I, I don't know. I, there's just so many books that I have strong feelings about. So when I mm. picked like for this season, it was just like, these are books that I love. It's not like some sort of like list of like favorites, you know? Yeah. Um, I get that. Cause I can't, I can't choose, you know, maybe like you said, like, you know, 20 to 30. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Here's that's, a that's list like a decent list <laughs> of books that have had a great impact on me and that I would read reread in a heartbeat but I think this might be like the book that had the most impact on me mentally speaking okay okay well I'm interested to hear about that then um yeah yeah we'll get into that in the discussion because I know you and I have very different opinions on this book so we'll we do although I think maybe less different than your questions implied oh really okay yeah, but then there's another question where I, I know we have very different opinions. Okay. So that'll be fun. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, cool. Um, you just recently celebrated a milestone. I did. I just turned 30. Ah! I know. That's so exciting. I Right? Everyone's asking me. He's like, are you freaking out about it? I'm like, no. Everyone keeps telling me that 30 is the beginning of the, the I don't, best. yeah, I don't give yeah. a fuck attitude. And I'm like, yes, finally, my moment of enlightenment is here. <laughs> finally. Finally. I start <laughs> I have made my it. people pleasing this to the curb. Oh, God. Any minute yeah. now. I texted my aunt that. She's like, LOL, that still hasn't kicked in for me. I'm like, don't tell me that. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're, you're ruining my hopes and dreams right now. Yeah, no, um, I, I literally, so many people that I talk to, wow, the, the street is so noisy, I hate it, um, so many people I talk to say that, like, their 30s are, like, their favorite, because they finally start feeling, I mean, not that, like, you know, people, like, all of us magically have things figured out in their 30s, but it's, like, finally, like, you start to feel, like, how you thought you were gonna feel yeah. being an adult, you know? Yeah, you're a little <laughs> and, bit more established at this point. You've got a few more Back things in the figured day, out. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I I probably assumed that like 21 or 22, I'd feel like an adult and that's just like <gasps> such a joke. <laughs> right? Thought I was yeah. going to have my life figured out by the time I was like 25 oh, yeah. and it's like, why not go back to get my PhD? And that's, that seems like a good idea. Mm. All that well, to say, I do not have things figured out, but I'm looking forward to my 30s. It's going to be... Hopefully a little bit more stable in my 20s. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I am hoping for that as well. Although I still have a little over a year left. No. Nope. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes. It's yeah. going to be a year of change. Lots of change. Lots of change. Um, well, I, well, I already told you happy birthday, but I'll tell you happy birthday. Thank you. And everyone listening should go wish Paige a happy birthday. <laughs> and I was going to post this on Instagram on your actual birthday, but then I was like, what if she doesn't want people to know her exact birthday? So uh, then okay. I didn't, um, but I'll probably post something That's fine. <laughs> now that I've talked to you about it. Yeah. I don't care. Um, Cool. Yeah. Okay, Everybody well, uses I my also, birthday as like yeah. the end of the summer party. So like, that's just mm, what my birthday it is, is. It is about that time. Yeah. yeah. July, time. the end of July. It's time for your end of summer parties. Well, I had nothing so fun and exciting this past week. Uh, I'm um, sorry to hear that because I had a great time on my birthday. <laughs> Yeah, no, I did not get to spend a couple days drinking rum on a boat. Yep. Um, yep. It's a good life. Yeah, I was just boring. We drove a ridiculous amount of time to get to a Costco this weekend. So that was the highlights of our week. Ooh, Costco. I mean, Costco is an amazing place, but. Right. Well, I mean, that depends on what you brought back. No alcohol. Unfortunately. Cookies? No cookies either. Um, <laughs> Sweets of any sort? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Your trip well, sucks, I, okay. Uh, I did get a giant bag of my, the Boom Chicka Pop kettle corn. Mm. All right. You know that's, that brand? Yeah. Yeah. So I usually get, it's like these enormous bags of, popcorn and you know that'll last me a while but um yeah so <laughs> super exciting here in our household let's uh i think it's time for our first segment i think it is we'll which just... um you know i'm blanking on the order that we had determined for these uh i think that puts you up for folio facts okay okay well we'll go to folio facts then we're gonna call it folio facts let's do folio facts Yes, we'll do folio facts first. And this week on folio facts, I decided to go with the the topic is not controversial, but my response to the topic is probably controversial. So <laughs> Let's talk about it. That's a good lead-in. All right, carry on. Um, so, people love to smell old books. Yes. Okay? This is a thing. This is a thing for book lovers, and even some people that don't like to read, they like the smell of old books. So, what exactly is that smell? And oh, God. You're going to ruin this for smell, me, What does it smell like? I'm not going to ruin it. Um... So, uh, the word floating around the interwebs for the love of old book smell is bibliosmia. Bibliosmia? Hmm. All right. Bibliosmia. Um, 
I don't like that word. It also is, I to the best of my knowledge, not an official word. It's not in Merriam-Webster. I don't think it's in Oxford English Dictionary either. So I think people just made it up. I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, that's the love of the smell of old books. So what exactly does this smell smell like to people? Well, according to various articles that I was able to find, um, some people say it kind of reminds them of chocolate. Um, other people pick up on uh, grass and vanilla. And this is starting to sound like to me when people talk about wine. I and was just like, thinking notes that. of blackberry and plum. And then I drink it and I'm like, I'm not getting this. Um, now, the vanilla actually makes sense because the lignin in the paper is related to vanillin. Um, which is the component in vanilla that makes it smell like vanilla. Mm. Um, now, turns out that you can actually tell what materials um, the book is made of by the smell. Um, especially if you are like a professional conservator. <laughs> um, then you really can tell by the smell what... Um, the actual materials that the book is made of are. And um, so based off of the smell, like a professional conservator, or probably there's archivists that can do this as well, rare books, librarians, etc. cetera, um, levels of acidity, lignin, and rosin in the paper. Um, these smells, whatever it is that you smell when you think of old book smell, um, come from volatile organic compounds, abbreviated as VOCs, that are released from the books or from the paper um, more specifically, although usually the covers are made from organic material as well, which can also release these compounds. Um, now, the smell can be measured quantifiably um, using chromatography and spectroscopy, um, and this can determine the level of preservation that the book is at. So the smell will tell you um, essentially how good of a condition the book is in, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. Um, so depending on what kind of gases are being released, that tells you um, mm. if the book is in good shape or not. Um, now... What do you smell when you smell old books? Because I can tell you that I do not smell chocolate, grass, or vanilla. No, you know, honestly, <laughs> I used to really like the smell of old books when I was younger, but the older that I've gotten, the more it just smells like musty mold. And that is where I come to my controversial point of the day. Well, maybe just the first one of the day. Um, I hate the smell of old books. Mm. And I know a lot of people, even people that we work with <laughs> in an archive, in an archive will not like that statement. Um, I know a lot of people that love that smell and I despise that smell because similarly, I just, I smell like, um, all I can smell is mustiness and yeah, yeah mold and, um, it's really funny because one of the archival professors that I had in graduate school, Dr. Ryder, um, he told us that he didn't like the smell of old books because when he smelled it, all he could think of was that was the smell of decay. 
Oh. Uh, because it is. <laughs> yeah. Man. It is. It's it's the paper um, decaying. That's metal. Um, to a greater or lesser extent. And so he didn't like that smell because that's all he was thinking about is that this paper is, is degrading. Um, and now I think about that every time oh, I God. smell. Yeah. Old book smell. Um, I didn't like it before I heard him say that. And I definitely don't like it now that after I heard him say that. Right. I mean, I'm kind of disappointed in the fact that now I smell mustiness because it used to be a much more comforting smell. And now it's just like mm. mold. Now it just like assaults my nostrils. And I'm just like, I don't. You know, I think that I actually like started happening once I worked in the library slash archive. And like, mm. I became a lot more sensitive to moldy documents because now I'm like, oh, God, there's mold on it. We must take steps to preserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is, like, a cautionary smell to me. Yeah. Like, if I walk in and I, if it's extra strong or um, slightly different than what I'm expecting, I'm immediately, like, on alert. Yeah, what is on the this? Lookout. I'm like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. They're like, moldy. Something might be moldy, like, you know, and, um, yeah, so that might have something to do with it as well. Yeah. But yeah. I even before I went through, you know, working in an archive mm-hmm. and being in graduate school for working in a library slash archive i still did not like that smell that's so, interesting huh. yeah but uh yeah smells produced from vocs volatile organic compounds um and the love of that smell is bibliosmia i don't know that still doesn't sound right to me but whatever that was what i found on the internet um that's cool yeah smell of decay (laughs) smell of decay (laughs) everything's dying everything is dying (laughs) okay i think on that note that's actually a really good time to start talking about this book yes i think that's a great segue into our summary for anna karenina Now on to our summary of Anna Karenina, which can also be described as everything is dying. Um, Hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, this is my favorite book. I read it um, in between my senior and super senior years in college. (laughs) I took the five-year route so I could get two degrees. So uh, I was back in Oklahoma. in between the two years that I was going to University of South Florida and read this book and uh, it destroyed me as it did again on a reread. Mm. Yeah, this book will fuck you up. So let's talk about it. Um, Anna Karenina was written by Leo Tolstoy and was published first as the serial from 1873 to 1877 and then as a complete book in 1878. Uh, it's puts the book's time frame right around Alexander II's reforms in Russia and major reforms going on in Russian society, including things like the emancipation of the serfs and the beginnings mm. of communism. Mm-hmm. Um, we touch on this a little bit in our Smirnov episode, so if you're looking for refreshers and us being hilariously drunk off our asses, go check out that episode. That's the only episode that's happened in so far. Yeah, and we went in with that idea in mind. If you're going to like talk about Smirnoff, you should be drinking Smirnoff. Yeah. Makes sense to me. We should drink in our episodes again. Ugh. 
My liver can't take that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Historical context is important for this book because there are a lot of conversations that revolve around the changes in Russian society and the rapid modernization that was taking place. Uh, One character in particular named Levin uh, has very conservative views on a lot of issues, like things like trains. Just not a big fan of the progressive movement, I guess. Uh, Count Leo Nikolaevich Tolstoy, it's a hell of a name, uh, was born in 1847 and he died in 1910. That's five years, I think, after the Russian royal family's assassinated. No. No, that'll be later. That'll be in, what, uh, 1917 or something like that? 1905 Um, is an important date. 1905, yes. 1905 is an important date. I'm pretty sure that's when... um, Oh, God. This is so embarrassing. I can't remember. Um, The first Russian revolution... Um, was a wave of mass political and social unrest that spread through the Russian Empire, um, and it was directed at the government, specifically really the czar, but also just kind of this outdated Mm. um, bureaucratic um, system that had been in place for centuries. Um, And it included worker strikes, but also unrest with peasants. Um, And it led to the constitutional reform... um, namely the October Manifesto, which established the State Duma, which was a multi-party system, Mm. and the Russian Constitution of 1906. So I was uh, getting there with (laughs) mentioning legislative power. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so essentially this is where, I mean, the idea of the Russian czar as kind of like an absolutist monarch had been crumbling for quite some time but 1905 is really when that gets tossed out of the window because people are really just fed up Um, but it will take another decade or two Mm -hmm. to get to the point where the monarchy will be um destroyed brutally ended yeah (laughs) yes um yes during the communist revolution so the decay of revolution i should say yeah the decay of um, noble Russian society is something that Tolstoy touches on in this uh, book, largely through yes, the perspective absolutely. of um, Levin. Won't get mm. into that too much because, um, like, it he gets really into it. Like, you're in one scene, Levin is participating in uh, elections for of the Russian mm. aristocracy. Levin doesn't understand what's going on. I don't understand what's going on. Tolstoy apparently has feelings. Well, I think it's actually, this reminds me of all of the political talk that goes on in the Count of Monte Cristo Mm -hmm. in our last episode. I didn't, I didn't get into any of that in our episode, but like Dumas had feelings about French politics. And I think that it's a similar situation in Anna Karenina, that Tolstoy's personal like political views like really shine through oh yeah definitely a lot definitely yeah um yeah so the tolstoys uh speaking of were a respected family with firm origins during peter the great's time when they were granted the title of count but they have some more mythical origins that puts them back a bit further um basically the Mm. myth is that a man named indris moved to russia from somewhere in germany in like the 1300s bringing about 3,000 people with them 
Um, but that person's name does not actually appear in the record, so that's just a, a family myth there. Hmm. Interesting. Right? Kind of cool. Uh, Tolstoy himself was apparently a poor student and left university before getting a degree. Uh, he Hey-o. did Right? Dropout. Yeah. <laughs> a successful dropout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he then decided to basically live like a frat boy for a couple of years in a couple different cities until gambling debts forced him to get a real job. Uh, and his response to that was to join the army with his brother. Uh, and that's how Tolstoy ended up participating in the Crimean War. Oh. Right. Our sensitive writer did not take to killing very well and uh, left the army after the war, but he was promoted to lieutenant during his time serving. Hmm. Uh, he then spent some time traveling around Europe, where he turned into a bit of an an- anarchist, hung out with Victor Hugo, who had a huge influence on his writing, so hmm. probably cool. a friend of uh, Dumas as well, or had influence on him, uh, slept with a lot of women, and then he went back to Russia to start setting up schools, of all things, which, considering he dropped out, is kind of hilarious to me. Was he setting up, like, peasant schools? Uh, it kind of sounded like it. Okay. I don't know. That would make more sense to me. Yeah. But. I mean, he's very anarchist. He's very anti-government, which is kind of funny, too. Um, yeah. Um, he was awarded a Nobel Prize on multiple occasions, but uh, didn't actually win any, which is kind of a controversy. Uh, on a more personal note, he was married to a woman named Sophia Bears in 1862, and at first it was actually a very happy marriage. Um, she basically helped him organize his life so he could write, and during that time he produced both War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Mm. But as Tolstoy got more weird and anarchist, uh, their relationship became extremely unhappy, like legendarily unhappy. Uh... So basically, all that to say, his life is just as interesting as the book, and I would read a biography about this dude. But let's actually get into the book. So the main story follows two separate love stories. The main one involves the title character, Anna Karenina, who is married to a man named Alexei Kareninin, uh, but starts up this affair with a Count Alexei Vronsky. Both of them named Alexei. That's fun. The second story... Like half half of Russian nobility. Right? Alexei. Congratulations, <laughs> you're Russian nobility. Your names are Constantine, Alexander, or Alexei. That's yep. it. <laughs> That's all it is. Um, the second story uh, revolves around Constantine Levin, who I mentioned earlier, and his infatuation with a woman named Kitty Sherbatskaya. Okay, so we actually opened up with a man named Oblonsky, who is Anna's brother. And he is just royally screwed up because he was caught cheating by his wife, Dolly, who is Kitty's sister. And she is understandably pissed, like packing her themes up to move out pissed. Uh, So Oblonsky, realizing he's royally screwed the pooch on this one, calls up his secret weapon, Anna. Anna is basically the most amazing person at getting people to like her and kind of do what she wants them to do just by talking to them. And everyone who meets her ends Mm -hmm. up thinking she's the most amazing woman ever. And they're practically in love with her after meeting her. So she easily convinces Dolly to forgive her stupid brother. Meanwhile, Oblonsky is hanging out with Levin, who has come to Moscow from his country estate to propose to Kitty. 
Oblonsky encourages him to do so, but warns him that another guy, a Count Vronsky, has been hanging around Kitty. And yeah, that is the same Vronsky I mentioned earlier as a third party in Anna's love triangle. <laughs> Bet you guys can see where this one's going. So Levin proposes to Kitty, who turns him down because she's really into Vronsky, but then Vronsky meets Anna, who's in town to help her brother, and he just, like, <laughs> drops Kitty. Doesn't give a shit Doesn't about give a Kitty shit. anymore. <laughs> he's, he's, like, single-track mind on Anna. Um, so good yep. times, you know? I should point out that Vronsky was never really hanging around with Kitty because he wanted to marry her, which is what Kitty wanted. Um, yeah. He was just hanging out with her because she was a pretty girl. So Levin practically runs back to the country. Bag. What? And he's a douchebag. He's a douchebag. Yeah, the term self-confident is used to describe Vronsky all the time, which is code for that dude is an asshole. <laughs> I'm like, if a, if a, like, if a, you know guy from the 19th century is describing another man as self-confident you can imagine like how insufferable that man would actually be to like i'm the greatest person ever shut up uh i wouldn't be able to stay like two minutes in a room with Vronsky without punching him in the face yeah i doubt it i really doubt it yeah yeah so Levin practically runs back to the country to get away from the situation and instead throws himself into farming and a full-time gig of convincing himself that he does not want to be married. Uh, but he's a romantic, so he totally does. There's a lot in this section about farming and Russian rural society, which is interesting to read, but not so much to summarize, so I'll just leave that for you to read in the book. He's much better at phrasing it than I am. But back to Moscow. Vronsky pretty much falls for Anna at first sight, and the attraction is mutual. Several issues here, though. The big one is that Anna is married to a big-shot politician in St. Petersburg. And Mm -hmm. while an affair is certainly not unheard of in high Russian society, it's kind of understood that affairs are really all about sex and not really about love. So the fact that they are head over heels for each other? (laughs) Little bit of an issue there. It's not really socially acceptable. It's not. No, if you're just going to fool around with somebody, then that's fine. But you can't actually, like, divorce and have feelings. It's also less acceptable because she's a woman. There's that. But there are several mentions in the book of other women having uh, affairs. yeah. Yeah. And it being just, like, a fling that happens for a couple of months and everyone talks about it for a little while and everybody moves on because they move on. Yeah. That's not what's happening here. So Kitty finds out about Vronsky's attraction to Anna in the worst possible way. At a ball, where she was expecting a proposal, after she had just refused Levin, who she actually did have feelings for. So she is crushed Yikes. by this. Yeah, it's it's brutal. Yikes. Uh, and then her I think f- I remember that part. Doesn't he, like, ignore her? Yeah, like, apparently there's one yeah. dance that, like, if you like each other then you, you dance that dance, because I guess it's, like, spicier than the other dances, and he asked Anna for that one, and she was like, what the fuck? He doesn't love me anymore because he asked somebody else for this dance. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, that's how Kitty finds I, out. That's not funny. That's a horrible it's, experience, but... It would be so traumatic as, like, a young girl. 
Mm-hmm. And it is. Oh, it definitely would. Oh, God. It's, yeah. yeah. Actually, her family, like, just makes it worse because they mistake her heartbreak for an illness. So they, like, call in a doctor and all that shit. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Then they just bundle so her embarrassing. up. It's so bad. It's so bad. And, like, the doctor makes her so uncomfortable. I feel so bad for her. Um. So, in response to this, they bundle her up and they send her abroad for her health for, like, a few hundred pages, um, where she has an identity crisis. As you do. Good. Yeah. Uh, so she tries to imitate a friend that she makes at what is essentially, like, a hot spring that cures all ills, so there's just, like, a bunch of sick people there, and her friend, like, takes care of all of them. Um, so this friend is pretty much a saint, and eventually Kitty realizes that she can't completely imitate her, and instead comes to, like, a middle ground. Um, she's not as superficial as she was when she turned down Levin, but she isn't pretending to be the saintly figure that her friend actually is. Uh, so she grows a little bit as a person. Uh, and then she goes back to Russia. But Anna's story really becomes interesting at this point, because after the ball, she runs back to St. Petersburg, partially because she realizes that a fling with Vronsky is a bad idea, and she's crushing hard on him, but also to see her son, Seriosa. Mm. Uh, she absolutely adores her son, largely because she doesn't love her husband, so all of her feelings from this relationship are poured into the boy. Yeah. But Vronsky follows her like a lost puppy and keeps showing up at any party where he thinks she is likely to be. And likewise, Anna starts only going to parties where she's more likely to see Vronsky. And surprise, surprise, they start having a full-blown <laughs> affair. Shocking. Right. No, we saw that one coming. Except literally yeah. everyone in Russian society except Anna's husband. <laughs> Yeah, that's what's so awkward about it. Like, he's so clueless. He's, he has no idea. So actually, let's talk no. about him for a second. I mentioned he's an important political figure, and also their relationship doesn't have a lot of love in it. It's partially no. due to the fact that he's 20 years older than she is, but really it has to do with the fact that Kareninen is just a very strict moral person, and he expects that out of the people around him. He's not outwardly very affectionate, but I'm I think he does care about Anna a lot in his own way. Um, she's basically the only person he ever really talks to. So once this affair gets out and he's actually like looking for someone to talk to, he doesn't have anybody. She was the only one that yeah. he would talk to about this stuff. So he's yeah. devastated by it. Uh, so today, Anna could just file for divorce and this book would probably be a lot less interesting. In Russian society, here, though, that's mm. a tough option, particularly for Kareninen, the husband. Uh, the affair is quite a scandal, and his career is likely to take a hit. Um, so although it's, he seems to be the last person to know about it, and he really could have just filed for divorce. Uh, but he doesn't want to just let Anna have her way and marry Vronsky, so he doesn't divorce her, because he kind of wants to yeah. fuck with her a bit. Yeah, he's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick about this whole thing, and he threatens to take your son away from her if she doesn't keep her yep. fare under wraps, which is pretty much the only thing you could threaten Anna with. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. <laughs> she calls Vronsky to come <laughs> over to the house she shares with Kareninen, and Kareninen and Vronsky run into each other in the hallway, and Kareninen is pissed. Vronsky yeah. is like, oh god, what have I done? And Anna is just unraveling. She's becoming an extremely jealous person when it comes to Vronsky. And oh, by the way, she's also pregnant. 
with Veronsky's child to, Veronsky's to specify child. <laughs> there. That's not like a, her and her husband had a baby in the middle of like her affair. Like, no, it's definitely Veronsky's kid. Yeah. Uh, when the baby does come, Anna gets really sick. So much so that the doctors are telling Karenin and she only has a few days to live. Uh, Veronsky like goes in the corner and acts like a little bitch. And he spends all of his time crying over there. But Karenin comes in despite all of this and like, he spends all of his time with Anna, and he starts taking care of the little girl that she has that, again, is not his baby, uh, but he he just falls head over heels for this little girl. So he forgives Anna for everything, and he's just doting on this baby. Hmm. Anna makes a stunning recovery and promptly runs up with Vronsky to travel Europe, taking their daughter, but leaving her son with Kareninen. Uh... They live abroad for a little while before they become bored with living in Italy. What a terrible life. Uh, and they come back to live on Vronsky's <laughs> estate in the country. Oh, the troubles of the Russian aristocracy. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. All right, so back to the Kitty Levin storyline. So Oblonsky is a really shitty husband, um, and he sends his wife Dolly to live in the countryside. And while she's there, things are, like, not great. So he sends Levin to go check up on her. <laughs> Instead of going Instead of going himself. Stuff. He's like, oh, Levin's a good friend. Go check up on my wife. Oh, God. This little yeah. trip is okay. how Levin finds out that Kitty is not married to Vronsky, which he fully expected would have happened mm. once he left. But he didn't yeah. hear anything about the whole Anna scandal until Dolly tells him. So this kind of prompts Levin to really come to the terms with the fact that he's still very much in love with Kitty. Um, and, you know, he ends up in Moscow a little bit later, and at which point Oblonsky turns into the best wingman you could possibly ask for and basically sets up a dinner party where Levin and Kitty have to see each other. Um, mm. And what do you know? They both still like each other, and they just decide to get married. Yay! Yay! Finally, good things happening to good people. Alright, so what happens next is an amusing bunch of mishaps, like Levin not having a clean shirt for his wedding, and just like all the arguments that come with being a newlywed. Uh, Kitty also becomes pregnant a few months after they get married, and there's just a lot of anxiety in poor Levin about that. He's freaking out. Mm. Uh, the whole scene where Kitty starts having contractions is hilarious. The poor guy who's basically manic running around as the baby was coming, just didn't know how to handle it. I was dying. Uh... <laughs> And then the baby comes, and it's just not what he expected. It's just, like, instantly disillusioned with parenthood. <laughs> I got a lot of laughter out of this, this section of the book. Yeah. Meanwhile, the drama continues on the Anna story plot. Russian society is brutal, and the few times that Anna went out, uh, people just insulted her, ignored her. You know, it was, it was rough. Um... Hmm. But she also really wanted to see her son. But Karenin now has this new female friend. They're not in a romantic relationship or anything. She's just a friend. But she has stepped in to take over the running of his house, which is typically a wife's job. Uh, yeah. So Anna was forced to sneak into her old home just to see her son on his birthday because this woman didn't want her to have any interaction with him. So hmm. after this episode, Anna just downward spirals. She's becoming even more uh, jealous and insecure and spiteful. And Vronsky keeps trying to mitigate the situation, but 
Anna just gets the point that she is throwing fits every time he leaves the house to do some kind of business. So, like, he goes to that um, meeting I was mentioning of the aristocracy voting, and she throws a fit about it. Good times. Uh, the main problem that continues to torment her is that she's only tied to Vronsky through their affection for each other, and that really isn't enough for her. She's still married to Kareninen. Uh, and because of how he treated her when she thought she was dying, she doesn't want to write to him to ask for a divorce. Vronsky wants Anna to divorce her husband so that they can get married and so that their daughter will legally be his. Since Anna and Kareninen are still married, legally speaking, Vronsky's daughter is a Kareninen. Uh, so basically this whole section, Ooh, yeah, okay. yeah. He doesn't have any legal rights to his own kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, this whole section is Anna self-sabotaging her happiness, slipping into depression, and beginning to rely on morphine to get through the day. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. Good. Everything is great. Yeah. Everything is great. Uh, eventually, she does agree to write to Kerenin to ask for a divorce, but he has recently come under the influence of a mystic of some sort. It's like this French dude who comes and he gives advice when he's in the middle of sleeping. It's weird. Uh, that's weird yeah the mystic advises against a divorce so Anna so he denies Anna's request and predictably this makes Anna's condition worse she and Vronsky are fighting constantly and her fits of jealousy are getting more aggressive uh, Vronsky is still very much in love with her and is doing whatever he can to keep her happy but she keeps interpreting his words and actions in the worst possible way hmm so finally, after a day in a near-manic state, she actually kills herself by jumping in front of a moving train, which is something that had happened uh, to a man on the exact day that she had met Vronsky. Yeah. Vronsky is just devastated. He stops speaking to people for weeks. Uh, Kareninen does take custody of his daughter, since, legally speaking, she is Kareninen's daughter. She's, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Vronsky doesn't fight it, he just joins Russia's war against the Turks. So the last you hear of him, he's on his way to the front lines. And that's how that storyline ends. Hmm. It's a feel-good. Feel-good storyline. Yeah, definitely. Um, the last part of the book focuses on Levin. During the birth of his son, he is a staunch agnostic, but he starts praying to God in his panic, just like, freaking out. Yeah. This sets off an identity crisis within himself as he tries to reconcile his agnostic beliefs with the desperate praying in that moment of panic. So he starts trying to define the meaning of life, and he nearly pushes himself to a suicide uh, act. In the end, though, he decides that while he thought he was agnostic, he had always been acting according to the Christian beliefs that his family had raised him with. Uh, and that his own thinking was just getting in the way. Whenever he stopped thinking and just did things, he always acted acted in the correct Christian way. So he's just like, hmm, I was Christian all along. Um, and that's how the story ends. <laughs> now, I've left out a lot. The book is nearly a thousand pages, and most of it is very detailed descriptions of people's thoughts. It's very, very psychological. But... Just want to let you know, I've talked to other people who have read this book, and the general consensus is that this book will fuck you up. It's depressing, and it's an examination of love and belief that's it's really intense. Um, 
So 10 out of 10, but go into reading this knowing what it is. It's great, but it will fuck you up. Mm. And thus ends my summary of Anna Karenina. And next up we have BB Bookstore. That's the one. No? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So this week on BBE Bookstore, I am going to be talking about Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Did you read it? By by Yuval Noah Harari. Hopefully I pronounce that something close to what it's supposed to be pronounced as. Uh, And no, I did not read it. I... I listened to it as an audiobook. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I literally had checked out this ebook through Libby like seven times. Mm-hmm. I have been trying to read this for like a year, and I think I got about like 15% of the way in in the ebook, and I was just never able to get further, you know, because I had reading for the podcast and like this is kind of like more of a dense read mm-hmm. and like it just like it wasn't happening and so finally I was like why am I not listening to the audiobook of this which the audiobook was like 14 hours so it was also like long it's long <laughs> um but I finally finished it and it's making me want to read the um ebook again I think I mentioned this if I mentioned this in the last episode, but it's definitely a different experience listening to an audiobook than reading the actual book. And I do feel like I retain less information listening to it mm. than I do reading it. Um, so, um, I don't know. I, I definitely want to like go back and like read it, read it. Um, but I did finish listening to it. So, we're finally going to talk about it. Um, um, anyway, so Sapiens. Um, I think first what I was going to do was read the little summary that I got off of Libby. All right. So the summary, this is me just straight up reading someone else's summary of this book Mm. so i'm sorry um from a renowned historian comes a groundbreaking narrative of humanity's creation and evolution that explores the ways in which biology and history have defined us and enhanced our understanding of what it means to be human Um, over one hundred thousand years ago at least six different species of humans inhabited earth yet today there's only one homo sapiens what happened to the others and what may happen to us Most books about the history of humanity pursue either a historical or a biological approach, but Dr. Yuval Noah Harari breaks the mold with this highly original book that begins about 70,000 years ago with the appearance of modern cognition. From examining the role evolving humans have played in the global ecosystem to charting the rise of empires, Sapiens integrates history and science to reconsider acceptive narratives... Uh, connect past developments with contemporary concerns and examine specific events within the context of larger ideas. 
Dr. Harari also compels us to look ahead because over the last few decades, humans have begun to bend laws of natural selection that have governed life for the past 4 billion years. We are only acquiring the ability to design. We are acquiring the ability to design not only the world around us, but also ourselves. Where is this leading us and what do we want to become? So that is the summary of the book. Um, it's it definitely like if so okay so it says a brief history of humankind if you wanted like some sort of like comprehensive history this is not that book mm, gotcha. um it couldn't be that book it's only like it's like 400 some pages or whatever mm. um you're not going to cover the entire rise of history so this book deals with a lot more like abstract concepts which was not something I was expecting, but something that I very much enjoyed. Um, some of the things that stuck out to me as kind of examples of this kind of approach that Harari took. Let me, let me compile my little post-it notes here. Um, let's see. So, uh, for example... He spends a great deal of time talking about the connection between science and Western imperialism and how these two things worked hand in hand together. Um, and later the connection between science and capitalism. Um, he talks a lot about in the earlier parts of the book, this is actually really fascinating. What sets us apart from other um, species um, is our belief in imagined abstract concepts. Um, so our ability to believe in things that do not exist in the physical world. Um, the idea of progress um, is backed by a strengthened trust in the future, which leads to credit and growth. Also an interesting idea. Mm. Um, the fact that our energy was limited to what we received from the sun. We were quite literally in the pre-modern society fueled by solar energy in the form of our food and fire. Um, and the industrial revolution is really about our ability to um, improve energy conversion. Also not how I ever really thought about the industrial revolution, no. even though I've studied it, you know, like a million times. Um, his discussions of the food industry hit real hard. Oh, Real hard. Um, basically, like, this book doesn't really pull any punches in terms of describing things as they are. Um, so, for example, talking about how um, factory farming was only able to grow once humans stopped viewing animals as animals and started viewing them as lifeless machines instead. <laughs> Um, where they are given an input and an expected output is, you know, right. what we get out of them. Um, so he actually talks about the food industry a lot in this book. I would not be surprised if he is like some kind of vegetarian or something, or if he like only shops like local like meat. I don't know. He talks about it a lot in this book and it is not it is not in a very good light essentially um 
He also brings up the point that consumerism is the only religion that people faithfully fulfill its tenets. Which was also like, wow, yeah. And then he's like, so what's the paradise promise to us with consumerism and will we ever reach it? The answer is no. Um, I'm going to say the answer to that question is no. Um, And he ends with this really fascinating discussion on happiness. And, you know, are we happier now than we were as a hunter-gatherer society? Like, all the improvements that have been made to our lives, do they actually make us happier? And um, also, what direction are we going to be taking the human race? He has this one line, I didn't write it down exactly, and it really is towards the almost end of the book, um, that humans have become gods in that we are responsible to no one. Hmm. The things that we do, no one holds us accountable for those things. Like the things that we do to the environment, the experiments that we are conducting and will continue to conduct on genetics and like all of this, we're, we're messing with like the very basic forces of nature and no one will hold us accountable to that. No. Um, which, you know, in a way makes us like gods, right? Right. Um, yeah. So fascinating, fascinating. It's, it's a book that asks difficult questions and it makes you think about, um, all the things that you take for granted and the things that you believe in and forces you to question like whether, where those beliefs actually come from, um, this book made me uncomfortable at various points because of how it was talking about certain things um, and because of my background, so particularly how it was talking about religion. Um, and even, you know, like anyone who reads this who's like a diehard capitalist probably won't like it. Hmm. I was looking through Goodreads and there's like a lot of like angry white men in the comments that are just like, this book is terrible. And I'm like, is it because it is like very frank about like capitalism? Probably. Um, (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's a very interesting book. Like I said, it's not a comprehensive text by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, I don't agree with him on all points either. I think that's important to talk about too. Um, I think the real value of this book is, like I said, asking these questions that really make you think about um, what you believe in. I think everyone needs to be a little bit uncomfortable in their life, and this is a book that will do that. I mean, you need to think, you can't just take things that you believe for granted, um, and you need to think about them and you know if you if you decide that you still want to continue believing those things then great but like you should think about them um and why you believe the things that you do so yeah i really loved that aspect of this book Mm. and he definitely has a way of phrasing things that is very interesting um yeah so i would give this book Four and a half out of five stars. Fair enough. Um, and I would absolutely recommend that people read it. Not because I necessarily think they'll like it, but I think it's just a good book to read. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and make you think a little bit deeper. So. Sounds interesting. It keeps popping up on my script feed, and I keep thinking about reading it. Partially because I had heard you say something about it. I would recommend it. I'm very interested in reading his other book that he has, which is Homo Deus, which I assume continues where he kind of left off with that human as God Mm. kind of idea. Um, But yeah, I'm interested to read that too. So would recommend. So, to start off our discussion, let's just go ahead and get the uh, difference of opinion out of here. I know you told me you don't like Anna Karenina. Why is that? Um, and this is where I... I, do, I don't not like it. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't I don't dislike Anna Karenina. Um, I think I've only read it once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I didn't love the writing style, although obviously it's it's a translation. So like I don't know how much of that is Tolstoy's actual style versus the translation that I read, although I have also tried to read War and Peace and that didn't go over well either. <laughs> so I think there is something about his style that I dislike. Um, it's just, it's it's heavy. It's heavy. I think. Yeah. It's heavy. I agree with that. Um, kind of like trying to read like Dickens or something, which I also not a huge fan of. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like the writing style as much. Um, but there's actually a lot of things that I do like about this book. I the Lennon Kitty storyline is one of my absolute favorite mm. romantic storylines um, ever. Actually, really, um, I I like them a lot. I like their story a lot. Um, I think you know honestly it probably really was the writing style for me that was the biggest hindrance to liking this book. It I think it's been a long time since I read it yeah. and I just felt like it was really dragging in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Um also well I'm not going to there's another reason why I don't really like this book but I'm going to save that for a later question. Okay. Um so yeah, I think it was just it was kind of heavy um, and I felt like it was dragging, so it, it took me a long time to get through it. I don't know what my experience would be like if I tried to read it now, to be honest. Um, well, it's funny that you mentioned it being yeah. heavy, because um, when I, I read this, I was getting quite a few headaches when I was reading it, and I kind of chalked it up to the subject matter, and then my parents took me to go see an eye doctor, and I came back with glasses. <laughs> so I was like, oh, maybe it wasn't the subject matter. <laughs> maybe it was just the fact that I was staring at a book without blinking for hours at a time. Um, oh, that's funny. So yeah, I totally get the heavy the heavy subject matter. Um, it's it's dense. It's psychological. You're, you're in people's minds for every trivial most of it yeah yeah and it's not just like big things that he's talking about it's just like the everyday life and you're getting their thought processes and their debates just like for everyday things yeah all right well 
awesome. In that case, let's bring in our bonus theme episode here. Uh, movie adaptations. Movie adaptations. And this is where we do not agree. This is where we do not <laughs> agree. All right. Your view of the movie, and then I'll chime in with my pure, unadulterated hatred for it. Yeah, so I've only seen one adaptation of Anna Karenina, and I'm fairly certain that there are many, many. others. Yeah, um, It's kind of like War and Peace. There's like a million adaptations of it. Um, so the only one that I've seen is, I believe, the most recent one that at least Hollywood has done. Mm. Um, and that is the Kira Knightley, um, Jude Law yeah. one. It's the same one I'll be talking about for reference. Yes. And I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. Um, I really liked the casting that they did for most of the roles. I liked, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he plays Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Matthew McFadden. Matthew McFadden. I liked him as a Blonsky. So I I love um, Matthew McFadden. Um, I also, of course, um, Kitty is played by Alicia Vikander, who I also love. Um, I actually don't really like Kira Knightley, um, so I was just like, eh, whatever, um, about that casting for Anna. Although I don't think I, I don't think she was like bad. I just like I don't really like care one way or the other for her as an actress. Which oh, that sounds terrible. I I don't really like. She's not a bad actress. I just like I'm like okay whatever. I don't like love her or anything hmm. like that. All right. Um, but I thought Jude Law was good as um her husband. Um, so I thought there were there were some good casting choices that were made, and I think we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Like the um how they set every scene up like a play yes. with all of the you're able to see like the different like set pieces moving in and out you know the scenery in the background is like getting scrolled through to the next scene mm -hmm. um i don't know why they made that choice for this book uh but i thought it was really interesting i hadn't really seen anything like that um even though i know it's been done before and they I think they do that in the latest Nutcracker movie, like, kind of a little bit. Mm. I don't... No, I do... Maybe not. No, I don't think so. So I watched, um, I think, like, an interview um, from the director who said that that was a choice that they wanted to do because the Russian aristocracy basically acts like they're on stage all the time. Uh, so mm. it was, like, an interpretation of how they sort of yeah. presented themselves to the world, which... I thought that was clever. That that makes sense. Yeah. I fucking hated how they pulled it off. Yeah. Um so I I think I what I like it about the movie is that it largely got rid of the parts of the book that I thought were boring. <laughs> and because it's only like 2 hours or something, you know, it's it's Actually, I'm not sure exactly how long it is, but it's no. not like a terribly long movie. No. Um, 
you really just are focusing on the romantic storylines mm-hmm. in this movie. It it loses a lot of that like commentary. Yes. Um, it does. That Tolstoy is putting in the book. Although you get some like kind of commentary on on Russian aristocracy, but um yeah, it loses a lot of it. So um it really is like it's Anna's storyline is still depressing. And I think how Kira Knightley portrays like that mental, the slow mental breakdown was fine. Um, But overall, it is just like a much lighter kind of like romance movie. And And because of the sets and what they're doing with the sets, it feels very whimsical, which is not what the book is i think um that being said i liked the movie for what it was i i don't know that um i think it's fun to watch and i yeah like i enjoy watching that movie i don't think it's like a particularly faithful adaptation of the book (laughs) yeah agree so yeah, I think like I think most of all, like visually, I found it to be very pretty, mm-hmm. which was part of the appeal for me. I think I think it did yeah. win an award for costumes and stuff at the Oscars or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna stop there because I would just kind of keep rambling on about that. So that's fair. So I love the casting for the movie. Uh, I am a mm. Keira Knightley fan, and the director yeah. for this movie was the same one that. Do you? Which is your favorite Pride and Prejudice? The Keira Knightley one. Okay. I mean, to be fair, I think I've only seen bits and pieces of the other one, though. I I there's two that I really like a lot, and Keira Knightley one is one of them. Anyway, I someone was telling me that they hated that one, and I can't remember who it was. I don't, I don't know. Um, Find out who that is so I cannot be friends with them. Yeah, I don't remember who it was. Anyway, I was just making sure that wasn't you because I was like, no. Why would she hate the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice if she likes Pride and Prejudice? No. If she likes Keira Knightley. That was, uh, anyway, yeah. that was my bad day movie in college. So, like, when I was just feeling shitty, uh, I'd play yeah. Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. My roommate would come in, like, oh, bad day, huh? I love, I love <laughs> that movie, man. I love it's that great. movie. It's so good. I should watch that again sometime. It's been a while. Anyway. Anyway. So, All right, so you like the casting. I also like the casting. I like the casting. Uh, the director was the same director who did Pride and Prejudice, the Kira Knightley version. So it had mm. the director, the main character, both main characters from Pride and Prejudice, which yep. is one of my all time yeah. favorite movies. So I was like, yes, I'm on board. Then Alicia Vikander, uh, Donald Gleason, Jude Law. Like, yes, I'm there. All of this is great. I was mm-hmm. iffy about the guy who played Baronsky, though. Aaron, I don't remember what his last name is. Yeah. yeah. I, was if- I was iffy about I that. I agree one. with that. Um, he was fine. He was fine. He was fine. Um, okay, so I love the casting. I love the director. I love the concept of putting the Russian aristocracy on the stage. Like, in theory, I should have just loved this movie. It should have been tailor-made for me. And I came out hating it. And I'm not really sure if it was just, like, I went in with such high expectations that there's absolutely no way that that could have met it, but 
as you just said, it's whimsical. So maybe it was that is that I went in, I went in for Anna Karenina and I came out with this whimsical love story. Mm, yeah, that was not what I was there for. I was there to be mentally destroyed by the story. It it doesn't have, yeah, it doesn't have that like. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe. Wow. Like just like depressive gloom yes. that hangs over. <laughs> I'm an emo kid. That's you know, what I came for. <laughs> um. Yeah, because like. I mean, it, you know, like they they try, they try with like Anna's storyline. Mm-hmm. Um I think you you definitely you definitely get a sense of that self-sabotage yeah. that she's doing. But yeah, it just doesn't doesn't feel doesn't feel the same. No, it doesn't. Interestingly, mm. this time when I was uh quote unquote reading the book, I was actually listening to an audiobook. Uh which was a great experience, actually. They had a great narrator for that one. Um, and she did, like, all of the reading Anna's breakdown in an extremely emotional tone. It was like, this is good. This is good. This is what I wanted out of the movie. Mm. Yeah. So. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, Anna. All of her stuff, sabotaging her fallen woman status in Russian aristocracy, which is horseshit. But moving on from that, uh, would you classify her as a sympathetic character, considering all of her... Like, she basically shoots herself in the foot for everything. Hmm. She's her own worst enemy. Yeah. So, I can tell you that when I when I read this, mm-hmm. um... God, I mean, I think I was in high school, maybe, maybe in undergrad. It's been a long time. Um, I disliked Anna a lot. Mm. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on her being a sympathetic character. I don't think. Um. And I, I think I would probably feel differently now. I just... Mostly, I'm just curious about what Tolstoy thought about her. Because mm-hmm. um, it definitely... It's, it's kind of, like, set up between these, like, two women and, like, two very different outcomes. Right. Right? You have Anna, who is basically, like, ultimately, like, consumed by her vices. Mm -hmm. And then you have Kitty, who, you know, it's it's interesting. You brought up that kind of discussion of, like, you know, her sainthood. And even though she decides that, you know, she's not as good of a person, you know, as her friend, like, she still kind of is kind of, like, more that virtuous Mm -hmm. character um, in, in the story. In, in the sense that she does things right after learning from her mistake mm-hmm. with Vronsky in the first place. Um, and so it's it seems like Anna's been given the short end of the stick to me. Um, 
because of how her, I don't know. Eh. I think to us today, Anna is a sympathetic character. That's a good point. Um, I think at the time, she was like a cautionary tale. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think she really does embody, you know, making making the the wrong decisions mm-hmm. um according to the morals of the time because even though like i think tolstoy had very different views to to most um most members of the <laughs> russian aristocracy um i think he still be, because of how he writes levin as a character mm-hmm. and like levin also similar to Anna's husband, but he's not quite the same, has a very, like, firm, like, moral sense. Yeah. Um, And because of how he writes Levin, I think, you know, Levin and Kitty are rewarded for making mm-hmm. the, good, the good, the good choices. The right. And ultimately, Anna, the emotional consequences for her choices is too high. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, I think today she's sympathetic. I don't I don't know how sympathetic of a character she would have been to people at the time that Tolstoy was writing, but also I don't know because, you know, Tolstoy is a, a he's a complicated author. And I think um showing the inside workings of her brain would definitely make people feel sorry for her, mm-hmm. I think. Still, um but yeah, basically, this is a woman who is stuck in a patriarchal society, and you know, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Just a bunch of bullshit. Um, she, you know, was undoubtedly um, handed off to this man twenty years older than her when she was probably like a teenager, mm-hmm. um, even like you know, like nineteen or you know something yeah. like that, um, who she doesn't love. And, you know, basically has to have a relationship with this man who's practically a stranger. Um, That sounds horrible. And then she's able to find love, but then, like, can't get a divorce, can't, you know, see her kid, can't, you know, like, her child is, like, not even her own. Like, her other child is not even her own. Like, it just, that's just shit. Yeah. You know? Um And everyone, you know, like, hates her because she actually went to the step of running away with her, you know, mm-hmm. not mistress, her, her <laughs> mister. <laughs> I don't know, her mister something. I, I think um, you're supposed to say lover, but I like that better. <laughs> uh, she she actually runs away with her lover which of course was like not what you're supposed to do if you're having an affair and i'm like why are you even accepting affairs at all like if it's not acceptable to do that i don't know right, like right. yeah so i think when i was younger i did not like that aspect that self-sabotage aspect because you just want to shake her and be like why can't you just be happy right you know um why can't you just be happy why can't you just trust that this man means what he says to you. Like if she could have just trusted Vronsky's feelings, mm-hmm. 
that's all that was really required. Um, and they probably could have lived happily enough, you know, depending on certain things. Right. But having gained a lot of perspective <laughs> in the past, you know, 10 or so years, mm-hmm. um, I think I would find that less irritating now and more just sad. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's a sympathetic character. Yeah, I was asking that question because I, I sort of struggled with it in places uh, myself because mm. you know, you're reading yeah. what you said is exactly right. And the self-sabotaging thing does make you just want to slap her a little, around a little bit to like, wake she's up. She's not a nice person. She's not. She's very... Um, so that makes it harder, I think. Well, she's also very aware that she's attractive and she's very, very self-absorbed. Um, so, like, mm. you see her in certain situations where she's purposefully, like, flirting with men, trying to draw them in, in that, you know, she knows she's the most pretty woman in the world, or in the, in the room, and she's yeah. the best conversationalist, yeah. so she can just have all of these men. She tries to pull it on Levin at one point, um, and she's just doing it to see if she can, and then, like, in her own mind later, she's like, yeah, I totally did this to, like, a married man, so why can't I do this to Vronsky? And you're like you're doing it like you you you're there you want calm down yeah but she's so yeah. like self-absorbed and she's stuck in her own head and that's sort of annoying uh but and then the fact that she she doesn't actually like love her daughter all that much the one that she has with mm, Moronsky yeah. like she she can only have she only has the emotional capacity to care for one person in any given relationship with her husband, it's her son. With Vronsky, it's just Vronsky. Like, sorry we had a kid, but that's I don't have enough emotional capacity for that, so it's all about you, man. And yeah. that sort of irritates me. Um, but also reading it and you know, just putting myself in that position and her isolation and all of that, then it does begin to make sense. Like, Vronsky gets to go out and have fun with all of his friends at these clubs and stuff and she's stuck at home and every time she goes out people are basically throwing stones at her um yeah so putting yourself in that context her self-sabotaging behaviors begin to make a lot more sense so i I would say she's sympathetic but i there were there were places in the book where i struggled with that concept i was reading it i was like am i not gonna like this book as much as i did the first time around like i'm saying it's my favorite book and like in certain places i'm just like the main character is being a huge bitch um no it's still my favorite book i still love it yeah main character is a bitch in places though like just that's how it works they're all all the characters are very complex um i'd say it's one of the one of the good points of this book is there's only the side characters are two-dimensional. Well, it's definitely making me want to go back and try reading it again. It's good. It's good. Although, yeah. if you didn't like the writing style, um, I tried War and Peace almost immediately after I got done with this book, and I probably should not have done that immediately after getting done with Anna Karenina. Um, so I was like 50 pages in. I was like, this is just going to go back on the shelf for a few years. Um, and I haven't touched it <laughs> since. Yeah. So, I don't know. It there might be something to your complaint about his writing style. Although I thought the translation I read was fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely gonna have to look into it again. I mean, especially given that, um, I do like the main storylines in this book. Right. Um, they're interesting. They're very interesting. Yeah. So, stands to reason that I might, I might find it more interesting, um, now that I have grown up. (laughs) I, I... I definitely, I was probably like 17 or 18 when I read it. Mm. So I think that was too much for me. I, yeah. It's, it's a rough book to read. So I wouldn't be surprised even given your accelerated reading level. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's Anna Karenina. It's Anna Karenina. All of our discussion questions. So. We'll hop on over to Creative's Corner. Okay, so I've got Creative's Corner this episode, and I am going to mention a YouTube slash potentially podcast cha- podcasting channel, but I only ever watch the YouTube channel, so... Hmm. We'll we'll put that on our uh, show notes. Should we find that? But it is overly sarcastic productions, which has been going on for quite a while. But I've only recently gotten on the bandwagon. Uh, there are two co-hosts. Uh, they just go by Red and Blue in the series. Blue is a history guy, and he will sarcastically break down the history of various events or countries. And Red is mm. more of a Uh, mythology and literary kind of girl. So she breaks that stuff down also hilariously sarcastically. Uh, For Blue, favorite episode is whenever he's talking about the history of Ireland, surprising no one, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But, you know, whenever you've got a section that talks about beating up on the English, I kind of like it. Uh, as far as Red's concerned, she actually goes into a very large, um, breakdown of the myths surrounding Aphrodite, which is hilarious. Um, also little things like both of them refer to Alexander the Great as things like Alexander the Pretty Good or Alexander the eh, just casually (laughs) in the middle of episodes, which makes me like just die laughing because I'm a nerd. Um, so yeah, I would check them out. It's fun to listen to. Uh, there's some animations that go on at the same time, give you little pictures, uh, go along with it. Some maps, should you need it for the history things, which are useful. Yeah, we got a YouTube channel. Check it out. It's pretty good. That sounds like it would be a great podcast. Right? Yeah. So funny. Wish I would have thought of that. I mean, That's any- a great idea. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, anything, anything that's um, sarcastic is probably going to appeal to me mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, but, you know, then you get to talk about history and, like, mythology, and that sounds even better. Right? I'm a fan. So, yeah, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll look into if they also have a podcast. Yeah, I think they mentioned, but I didn't see anything on Spotify. Um, they may be someplace else, and yeah. honestly, I only check Spotify, so that... Might just be a problem on my part, but we'll let you know in the show notes. All right. Well, that's Creative's Corner. 
and so sweet. That's Creative's Corner. That about wraps up this episode. It does. It's uh, it's a lot shorter than I thought it was going us. to be, given the fact that look at us. I picked one of the longest books in my arsenal to bring out for this one. And we've been doing that a lot lately. <laughs> right? We gotta find smaller books. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, definitely gonna be uh, some smaller picks coming up um, in, in this season. <laughs> um, but yeah, another another great classic. Um, yeah, I've heard... Out of, the, out of the way. I've heard it said that this might be the greatest book written in the 1800s. Um which is kind of why I picked it up mm. the first time. I I would obviously make that statement, but uh, I'm not sure how many other people would. Uh, I don't know that I would agree with that, but it's been a while since I've read it, so... <laughs> I don't know. That's fair. Um, yeah. Um, well, if you enjoyed today's episode, please um, consider leaving us a review uh, you can also follow us on social media. Um, I do, you know, post things on there from time to time. So you can keep up with all things Big Book Energy. We have a Twitter and an Instagram, both of them at big underscore underscore. Wow. <coughs> underscore book underscore energy. Um, we also have a website, bigbookenergy.com. And that is where you can find theoretically the show notes to every episode <laughs> where uh you know i'll post links to all the stuff we've mentioned in the episode and i usually have like summary of main points that we've said that was a really loud car i'm sorry um and we also now are affiliates with bookshop.org um so we do have a bookstore where you can purchase copies of any of the books mentioned um, in this season and we do get a small percentage of the sale so if you want to support us that way and also small independent booksellers it's a uh, it's a win-win we also do have a patreon account if you'd like to support us that way uh we do give you extra bonus content if you sign up to be one of our book ninjas which include some rather long uh bonus episodes this season we are doing our movie magic theme so the last one we put out was the immortal life of henrietta Lacks. uh you can check that stuff out over at patreon.com slash big book energy and we have a new supporter we do yay so uh a big thank you to ryan thank you ryan for supporting the podcast you are now a book ninja and you're awesome you are so awesome thank you thank you ryan our newest ninja and i think that's a wrap i think that's a wrap yeah so until next time guys bye bye Also, the washer is going to play like a little tune for me when it's done. Let's consider it washer. And it'll probably do that like four times in a row.
It's very insistent okay. that you check it. I'm um, done. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello, there's I'm here. done. <laughs> Why haven't you gotten them yet? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I should add that part to the, the end of this episode. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Get your clothes. Get your clothes. Get your clothes. It's it's such a cute chipper noise though. Yeah. That's the worst. Very happy. Oh. Did you hear it? No. Oh no. It's so cute. It's such a cute polite noise. And this is so weird and random, but in Jurassic Park 3. Oh, um, the phone. The phone. It sounds like. Yeah, it sounds like the, it reminds me of the, it's not exactly the right. same, obviously, but it reminds me of the ringtone for the satellite phone. 